This week on Dig Me Out, Chip Midnight joins Tim and Jay to talk with John Fine of the book Your Band Sucks and guitarist of Bitch Magnet. Hello and welcome to another episode of Dig Me Out. I'm your host, Tim Minichi, and joining me as always, my co-host, Mr. Jason Ziak. Jay, it's episode 246. We're in season five, and uh, we got a big show tonight. Well, tonight's relevant to when you're listening to this, but... <laughs> Morning, afternoon. Morning, whenever. Whatever time of day this is. Yes, it's going to be It's going to be a good one. It's going to be a good one because... Um, I'm going to give a little backstory here. Uh, Chip Midnight, who's joining us. Hi, Chip. Good evening, or good morning, or good afternoon. Exactly. Not too long ago, probably like a month ago, uh, hit me up on Facebook and said, hey, you should check out this book. And um, knowing that I I do enjoy a good read once in a while, um, I said, yeah, because it was called Your Band Sucks. And I said, (laughs) I can relate to this. And... uh, it's like written for for me. It's written for me, exactly. <laughs> and uh, knowing we'd had some authors on in the past, he said you should uh, you should be talking to this guy. So we, uh, Jay and I, both read the book. Jay, did you make it through the whole book? Be I honest. made it about halfway through. Okay. Oh, for and fuck's then, sake, Jay! I know. <laughs> I'm I'm a poor reader. Okay. Jay's very busy. <laughs> busy. I've only flown so much in the last two weeks. That's the only time I get to read. Oh, I see what you did there. Okay. So joining us from, is it New York City, John? From New York City. From New York City, John Fine, author of Your Band Sucks, What I Saw at Indie Rock's Failed Revolution But Can No Longer Hear, former guitarist of multiple bands. Do you say former for Bitch Magnet, or is it just that they're on hiatus until the next reunion get-together? Well, seeing that there's basically not supposed to be a reunion get together ever again, I you know we we, we can say, uh, yeah, I, I am the guitarist in the band uh, Bitch Magnet, which no longer exists. How's that? Okay, that doesn't work, does it? That's bad. Okay. Um, However, you choose to phrase. Mm. I defer <laughs> to you guys. Okay. But, but, and then but I mean, whole... yeah, there, there, there's no like reunion news to share if that's if that's what you're asking. Gotcha. No, no. I, I figured you know this thing goes in cycles, so we wouldn't be talking about that till like 2025 would be the next time <laughs> the reunion would come up. God, dude. Uh, uh, yeah. Anyway. Uh... <laughs> also, the so, so a... anyway, yeah. So I'm John Fine. I'm the author of Your Ben Sucks. Excellent. So Jay and I were particularly interested in and and Chip as well. Because of the connection to Ohio, um, I'm in Columbus. Chip's in Columbus. Jay used to be in Columbus. Uh, he's now in Austin, Texas. Um, Jay's from Amherst, Ohio, which is only 20 minutes up the road from Oberlin. Holy shit! Yeah, I I, uh, I went to uh, I, I think I went to some to a scary bar in Amherst a couple times. Ah, nice. <laughs> yeah. And my sense. wife's from Lorraine, so good God! I've, I have Not, driven yeah. through Oberlin. 50 times in the last nine years visiting Lorraine County, family. Ohio, in effect. All right. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm from Westlake, Cuyahoga County, but I don't think I ever went to Oberlin. Why not? What? Uh, uh, there might have been a show there that you wanted to see at some point. That's <laughs> Seriously, I mean, it's, 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 yeah. a, it's a reasonably picturesque college um, with about, gosh, I don't know, three or 4,000 high-strung, artsy kids. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, there's not that much to recommend it. 
No. I mean, look, I, I, I want to be clear. I, I had a great time. Well, kind of. I, I had a great time in fits and starts. Um, you know, I got to start a punk rock band um, that turned out to have some legs. But um, yeah, I, I don't know why people who aren't going there um, need to, would, need to, would need to go there. John, what is it about, and I, I don't know if it, I'm making a blanket statement, but like um, Ohio colleges for East Coast people. I, uh, I grew up in uh, Connecticut, New Canaan, Connecticut, mm-hmm. until I was about uh, seventh grade. Oh. And like a handful of people I went to elementary school with went to Ohio Wesleyan, maybe Oberlin, Denison. Um, it just seems to like, I, I don't know, there's something about Ohio colleges that draw people from the, from the East Coast. Th- th- that's interesting. I mean, for Oberlin... It's just that it, you know, I went in the mid and late eighties and, um, it was sort of an accepted, um, destination. If you were a certain kind of underachiever, you know, like you were smart, you were kind of a fuck up, you know, like you maybe had some art thing or political thing. Oh boy, did people have a political thing there? Um, and so, you know, you were going to go to Oberlin. Um, and that's pretty much how I ended up there. Um, I liked it. I think I was of the last generation of American college students where you could sort of not do so great in high school and still get into a decent college. Um, you know, with my high school record, I'd be lucky to get into a state school at this point. Right. Thank you, Oberlin. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I want to go back to um, Oberlin in the sense that the book is very detailed. And I'm curious as to. Were you keeping like a journal at the time? In I understand like the stuff from the recent reunion tour would probably be easier to to keep track of that kind of stuff. But we're talking about you know nineteen eighty eight, nineteen eighty nine. That's quite a while ago, and I know that my memory isn't that great from nineteen eighty eight or eighty nine. So were you, were you journaling, or were you keeping some sort of records or notes from shows and all those experiences? You know, it, it was a thing back then um, to. You know, there there, there were such a thing as fanzines, as us old guys know. And, um, you know, generally every fanzine would have a tour diary in it. And so anytime, pretty much anytime we went on the road, I I kept a journal. Um, There may not be an entry for every day, but I was trying to um, keep track of what happened. Uh, Two reasons. One was that I had aspirations to writing from an early age. So, like, doing that kind of writing for myself was familiar, but also... Um, and I mean, you know, that, that was a big part of it, but also, you know, I don't want to get too highfalutin, but I mean, like it, this was a very important thing to me and a lot of things were happening in kind of quick succession. And I think I had the sense that, you know, even if I, um, yeah, I had the sense that I just wouldn't keep track of it. I wouldn't remember it unless I wrote it down. And, you know, you, you said that, um, you know, the stuff that happened on the reunion tours or the Bitch Magnet reunion tours in 2011 and 2012 were recent and therefore conceivably easier to remember. I mean, man, I was taking notes like a motherfucker. Um, (laughs) There was no other way. Um, And I'm glad I did. And generally after each tour or like, so so we did, we did, how do we do this? We did, um, we played two shows in Asia in November of 2011, then we did Europe in December of 2011, then we went back to Asia in April 2012, and then we played in America in October of 2012. And generally, I'm, I'm, I do not exaggerate, for about, a, I would take a day after each of those, um, you know, mini tours. And, you know, in addition to the stuff that I'd written down at the time, like, I would just take a day and just, like, write 
as much as I remembered. I mean, because the, the sensations were so fresh. And at that point, I knew I was doing a book. And I, but honestly, even if I wasn't doing a book, like I really wanted to remember that stuff. And, you know, the thing about touring is that there is such a density of event, you know, like so much stuff happens in a day and like the, the ups and downs of it are crazy. And, um, you know, you'll never keep track what happened at which show. Um, so yeah, it was, I knew I had to do that. And for most of the big, for the two big tours that bitch magnet did, I had that. And, um, just a lot of other sporadic tour diaries and such, which I kept as my wife will tell you, I'm a pack rat. I also found that artifacts from the time were very evocative and bring back a lot of memories. You know, like I can look at a show list of, um, you know, like the bitch magnet itinerary of the, our 1990 tour. And, and even if I don't have it written down in my, you know, diary, I might remember some detail about like, Oh wait, was it this show in Austria where, like, I thought there were skinheads and they were trying to kill us? Was it that show in Austria? And as it turns out, I couldn't remember which, but, like, I remember that, that that was a thing, and I think that did end up in the book. So you mentioned about you knew you were writing the book when you're doing the reunion tour. How did that actually come about in terms of having a book to even write about? Uh, what happened was this. Um, so like in my real life, I'm a journalist. Um, you know, I've, I've worked at business week. I've done honor stuff for CNBC. I'm currently the executive editor of Inc magazine. And a few years ago, my agent called me up and said, I've got a book idea. Come in and talk to me. And he laid this idea on me, which I got really excited about that had nothing to do, which was a totally different idea from your man sucks without going into too much detail. It was kind of about um, people like people who've gone off the grid and gotten into some really intense kind of organic lifestyle thing. Um, and I bring this all up because this is actually relevant. Um, I was having lunch with someone who was an editor at the publisher Viking uh, a couple of weeks after I had this conversation with my editor. Um, I'm sorry, with my agent. And I go to lunch and I sit down and the editor from Viking says, so, hey, what's been going on? And I said, well, funny you should mention that. I've got this book idea. And I do this whole song and dance. And at the end, I'm kind of like, you know, you know, big, what do you think? Like puffing and panting from like the pure wedding I was just doing. And he was all like totally no response. And I was like, wow, this is going to be a very short lunch. And then he said, okay, what else is going on? And I said, well, you know, I'm doing some writing and I'm doing some working with startups. But um, I got to tell you, because um, this was in the spring of 2011, I said, uh, I got to tell you. So I was in this band in the 80s and 90s and, uh, our, you know, we, we, we weren't famous, but, you know, we toured and we put out records. We went to Europe twice and all that stuff. Um, our records are being reissued, and I haven't told anybody this, but we just got asked to reunite by this pretty big festival um, festival in the UK, and I think we're going to do it. And he was like, oh, really? Tell me about that. And so, you know, we have this lunch, and I'm kind of winding back to blah, 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 80s and 90s, indie rock underground, you know, blah, 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 touring the USA and Europe in a van. And finally, after a half hour, he's like, that's the book, write that. So... Um, this book wasn't my idea, um, not at all. And like, I wrote a proposal. He bought it, um, you know, and I wrote it, and they put it out, and here we are. I gotta say though that it was always sort of in the back of my mind of like, you know, I mean, memoirs are a terrible idea, and memoirs are horrible, and memoirs should be shot, and there are too many memoirs, and blah blah blah. But 
you know, I always felt really close to this particular time. And it was always kind of in my head to write a book about it. You know, it was honestly something, it was a fucking complication that he brought it up. But the thing that I came back to was that, you know, someone was going to write this kind of, um, you know, indie rock, punk rock memoir. You know, it's it's the it's the Kitchen Confidential. It's not the famous guy. It's like the guy who just saw stuff and hopefully can tell an interesting story. And if someone wrote that book and it wasn't going to be me, I was going to be really bummed out about it. And so it was kind of crazy that I ended up having a chance to write the book after all. Yeah, I've had a chance to read quite a few of the, the memoirs that are, and I think Jay and Chip as well, that are from the 90s. Um, musicians. Uh, Jacob Slichter from Semisonic, Juliana Hatfield, you know, Bob Mould. Yeah. Um, we, we even have a, a guy from Columbus that was in a band called Watershed that wrote, um, I don't remember the name of the book, but... Uh, Hitless Wonder. Yes. And, and no, it was very... <laughs> that, that's was that? Book. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that's... Yeah, yeah, I've heard that book. Um, it's funny you mentioned J- Jacob Schlichter, if I'm pronouncing his name correctly. Um, I, th- that book has sort of always been on my list to read. And as I started writing my book, I was like, I actually shouldn't read it because it's probably the closest thing out there, even though, you know, Semisonic, um, you know, I'll be very happy if I never hear that song again. But, you know, they were famous. They, they, they had a hit. Like, like they, they got to see the, the whole, you know, the really big deal stuff. Um, mm-hmm. I guess I, I can read that now. It, and it actually turns out he lives in Brooklyn, I think, and we have some mutual friends. I should call him up and have a beer with him or something. Um, uh, I've read the Bob Mould book. Uh, it's clear that the, that Husker Du were a really important band to me. Um, and they still are. And, you know, I think there's like, they're honestly far too pop for the stuff that I like, but you know, in, in between say, I don't know, like 83 and 86, they were just so relentless and full on. And the shows were so crazy that, um, you know, I got to give it up for them. You know, seeing them in Cleveland in 1986 was a really formative experience because it was terrifying and incredibly exhilarating at the same time. I was really disappointed in his book um, for a bunch of reasons. And one of them them was that he wrote it very kind of flat, which I guess is his narrative style. And I I felt that, you know, he's lived a really unique and really intense life. And, you know, there was so much drama that I felt that he didn't quite portray or care to. but the other thing was this. I was really bummed out that there was so little Husker doing the book. And I realized that, all, like, honestly, he probably just doesn't fucking remember a lot of that stuff. You know, like, they were doing 200 shows a year. Like, stuff was flying at them a million miles an hour. And he was drunk and on speed for a lot of it. So, you know, um, maybe he wasn't taking notes. He was driving the fucking van. I really, I really would recommend Hitless Wonder because I think that is more uh, in the kind of experience you had, although the the band is watershed and they were signed very ever so briefly to uh sony or epic or one of the sony labels um but uh yeah it, it's it's a very uh kind of working class band who you know had a lot of the um, playing in front of three people in toledo kind of shows along the way oh yeah um, and ne- never a big hit um mm-hmm. got wined and dined by the labels and then i can't remember what band ended up uh being the priority but they were not the priority but they're yeah. they're very kind of cheap trickish and they work kind with of, Jim Steinman. Yeah. Oh, really? Which is crazy. Like, they have a crazy. very weird trajectory as a band in the 90s that is common to a lot of bands, but also, like, their story has a lot of weird, unique twists and turns. But, yeah, they have that, like, they got signed, and then 
the guy who signed them, I don't, I think, left, and then they didn't become. They were not a priority. There was a bigger band that was a priority, and oh no, that that always happened. Um, yeah, you know, the, the, there's a chapter about two thirds of the way through my book where, you know, a lot of my friends were getting signed, and a lot of bands who who I really love were getting signed, and a lot of them, you know, they had that kind of shit happen. You know, um, Arrestes, the drummer from Bitch Magnet, um, ended up in Walt Mink who had, they were on two major labels and they had just absolutely disastrous experiences with both of them. You know, like the A&R guy gets fired, your call stopped getting returned, you know, I mean, like just all that kind of shit. Um, I'm going to get the particulars wrong, but Kreutzen was in like a year long or more dance with a label that I think was called Mechanic, which was like a metal imprint of A&M or something. Um, and it it took the label so long to decide that you know, okay, we're not going to sign you. Like at that point they were like, we're done. You know I mean? Like shit like that happened. And you know, it's, I, I, I've written about in, in my life and listen to me in my life, Jesus, kill me. Um, <laughs> you know, in, in my, in my day job, I've written about, you know, the media business a lot. I've written about the music business, you know, um, I have a pretty nuanced view of a lot of this stuff, but, um, yeah, I mean, yeah, that kind of shit kills a band. And I think, you know, a lot of my friends who were weighing, you know, signing major label contracts as the 90s were on, you know, they were kind of aware of that. They were like, well, number one, we got to get a lot of money up front because, like, you know, we may not ever make a record and th this this may be the last thing we do. And at that point, my feeling was, you know, I that's the reason why I wouldn't do this. Um, and, you know, I'd always work jobs while I was playing in bands and I kind of expected there to be that kind of juggle. Um you know, I don't know. I mean, I'm not going to be doctrinaire about people that signed, decided to sign a major label, but, you know, there's a pretty low percentage of, like, my favorite records in the world that came out on major labels, um, especially once I take ACDC's, like, 20 albums out of the mix. Um, and, you know, yeah, I mean, like, I like weird music. My bands played weird music. That was the kind of music I wanted to play. You know, I didn't want to i i mean i couldn't have but i didn't want to like you know try to do something else i wasn't going to write pop songs you know i didn't want to go metal um you know i just didn't want to do that so i knew that this world wasn't for me um you know some people uh yeah you know, i've got friends who sold a lot of records um but i've got a lot of friends whose bands just kind of you know i'm i can't pronounce joe from watershed's last name i just looked it up do you guys know ostrike 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 okay um you know I don't begrudge the Joe Ostracks of the world that decision, but I mean, you know, you had to understand whenever you sign with a giant corporation like that, that, you know, you could just, it, you know, unless you're Mariah Carey, I'm dating myself with that reference, you know, you're just never going to be that important to them. And, you know, at, at some point you can just sort of disappear. I'm not sure how, how much homework you did on the, on the dig me out podcast, but Jay and Tim, that's kind of the, the focus is, is so many bands came out in the nineties yeah. and, and, yeah, we can do shows for the rest of time. I mean, there's no, we we will never <laughs> run out of bands to talk about. Right. So well. many, so many were signed or on some, you know, at least a, you know, marginally sized label that you could reasonably be reasonably have heard the record. Um, yeah. Except but you the, did. yeah, and exactly. Well, the thing that's weird is that uh, it seems like you know we talk a lot. You know, obviously we talk a lot about bands that you know, the mainstream didn't know about one of the themes that always comes out is like, there's a sense of failure amongst all of them. Like, even if they only had one hit, it was like, well, we had one hit, but ultimately there's this like sense of like, when you look back on the band that, you know, it didn't work or it failed, I guess 
when you're trying to make hit songs, that starts to, you can figure that out, right? We set out to be the mm -hmm. biggest band in the world and we never had a hit or we only had one. So that's, we failed. What were, what were your goals and, and expectations? I mean, how did you, um, and then I guess, and then how did, how did you think about in new rock overall at the time? Like what, what did you want it to become and what did you hope it would become? Sure. Um, the highest aspiration, you know, um, you could have, I could have, you know, in the eighties when bitch magnet, you know, was forming and getting out on the road, you know, the highest aspiration was like, um, pre major label Sonic youth, you know, you toured, um, six or eight months. You toured constantly. You toured all the fucking time. Um, you know, you played good shows. Uh, you know, there was, th th this wasn't the point of it, but like, you know, there was the mainstream outlets were aware of you, although I, th that didn't really matter to me. Um, in as much as anyone knew anything about record sales, your record sold pretty well in underground terms. But the most important thing was that, you know, you did this music, like that was your job. You know, you, you supported yourself by playing in this weird band. And, you know, at the time, Kim Gordon and Thurston Moore lived in, you know, on the Lower East Side. I mean, I'm sure they did not have a giant apartment. You know, I'm sure they barely had any apartment at all. But that, that was fine. That that was plenty. That sounded really great to me, and it sounds it you know it sounds pretty great to me now. We didn't get there. Not not a lot of bands do, you know. Um, but yeah, you know, I start out a chapter in the book quoting um, Joe Carducci, who wrote "Rock and the Pop Narcotic." You know, all bands fail. Every band fails. You know, like you can be in the fucking Beatles. Like eventually, it comes down to like I don't want to be in the same room as that guy. I don't even like mm. the Beatles. I just want to bring that up. You know, mm. you can be. Um, I mean. You, you could be Dinosaur Jr. And, you know, it's Lou Barlow screaming at um, Jay Maskus on the street in Northampton three years after, like, they broke up for the first time, saying, like, you know, you fucking asshole, we actually could have been Nirvana. You, 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 I can't believe you fucked this up. I mean, th 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 there's always something like that. And by the way, if you don't fail, then you're you too, and you're horrible, so who fucking cares, you know? Right. I, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> Look, um, the, the ultimate goal has to be, like, you know, do did did we play what we wanted to? You know, were there people who responded to it? You know, like I, I guess you know you have to be like that. I'm proud of the records yeah. I made. You know that that's huge. You know, and like I unlike some people I know who and then some people I know who I like a lot. Like there's not a record where I'm like, yeah, you know the label forced this producer on us and he kind of rewrote some of the songs and I'm not really. I mean, like I, I got nothing like that. As for indie rock, Jesus Christ, man. I mean, like, I, I write that um, the, the subtitle of the book is like, you know, what I saw at the failed indie rock revolution. A couple yeah. of things. Number one, it turns out, and I'm somewhat regretful about this, indie rock is like a genre now. And it's like a genre that's something totally different of mm. what we all understood indie rock to be. Like, indie rock to me was bands on independent labels, like Drunks with Guns, Sonic Youth, you know, um, Decroits and all this fucked up shit, basically. You know, now it's stuff in car commercials. You know, now it's um, bands that it, it's like uh, college rock in the demeaning way of college rock. You know, it's like jangly bands, and, and they're all essentially polite. Um, the, the 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 craft level is pretty high. You know, the, the smarts are evident. It does nothing for me. Um, so I wish I'd thought that part through, frankly. But like, I also while I was writing the book, I was trying to think of a different thing to say than indie rock, and I just fucking couldn't. You know, it gets really. If you mm -hmm. say if you say punk rock, it I know what that means in the context of us and you guys do. Like when we say the Melvins are a punk rock band, like we totally get that. But to most people, it's like, oh, so they sound like the Sex Pistols. Mm -hmm. No, 
let me explain this to you. You know, and like I can't say we're a hardcore band because that means a whole other thing. And you, you can't get weirdly precise and scientific and be like post-hardcore because that means nothing and it sounds horrible. Um, I use underground wherever possible, but whatever. Um, all I can say is, you know, I wanted us to take over. I say it was a failed revolution because like, you know, I didn't want the erection of a parallel industry. I wanted the big, tall buildings where Warner Brothers and then Columbia, now Sony and Universal, like I wanted those buildings to come down. You know, I wanted the CEOs out on the street. I wanted us to be, I just wanted that shit to go away and I wanted everything, I wanted there to be a million bands like us. Well, there are a million bands like us. Uh, there is a parallel music industry in which they can still thrive, but I don't know, like Nickelback sold 80 trillion records. You know, Taylor Swift, who, Taylor Swift probably isn't the worst example of it. There's probably someone worse that I just don't know about, but like, you know, Taylor Swift is the biggest thing going. Like I, that, if there had been a revolution, if there had been a revolution that I was interested in, like that shit wouldn't be happening. I understand as a grown-up why that revolution couldn't happen, can't happen, didn't happen. But, um, you know, I was I was bummed out about it when, you know, not, not that it didn't happen, but just like when it started falling apart. I mean, it, it was really it was really sad and hurtful. It seems in some ways maybe technology has created the outcome, but it, it's technology creating it, not art. I mean, is that the big difference? So now those buildings are, I think some could argue, are being toppled. Well... Um, it's all right. So it's funny you mention that because I'm I'm working on a book review of a really good book called um, uh, "How Music Got Free," which is all about the pirate underground of the '90s. Um, and like th- th- this guy found this dude who worked at a CD plant who's like was like responsible for the first leak of like um, 2,000 albums. I mean, it's an unbelievable book. It's a great book, and it's all about how technology you know, destroyed the music business as it was currently constituted in the 1990s. Okay, but here's the thing. And I was just looking up the numbers so I can spout this off the top of my head. In the year 2000, the recorded music, uh, the, the revenues for recorded music in the United States of America were $14.6 billion. In 2014, the total revenues for recorded music in revenues in the United States of America was $6.7 billion. Now, in business terms, when you lose more than half of your revenues, it's a fucking catastrophe. But that's a $7 billion business. That's pretty fucking big. Now, I grant it's not big enough to, like, enable you to give free Coke out to every radio programmer in the world and, like, you know, buy hookers for, you know, every third-tier, you know, re- record store chain guy in the Midwest. By the way, those guys don't exist anymore. Um, right. But, you know, but what I keep coming back to is, like, the big, you know, the really big stuff most of it still still feels pretty awful to me, you know, like, like big commercial, um, pop music, you know, there's more weird stuff kind of creeping in, I guess, around the edges, but Taylor Swift is the biggest thing in the world. Not, I don't know, LCD sound system, um, who did sell a lot of records. Um, and, uh, I mean, see, this sucks because like, I only know the music I know at this point, you know, if I was paying attention, I could be like, yeah, I mean, there is obviously a Nickelback of right now. Maybe it still is Nickelback. I don't know. Like, you know, they still exist. They're still playing arenas. They're still probably selling platinum. They're still putting platinum records on the wall. You know, they're still allowed to exist. Now, uh, that, that the glass half full or maybe more than half full is that, you know, it's easier for 
bands like the Melvins to live forever on a fan base. Um, you know, the Melvins were always very smart about their inter- their interfaces with um, you know major labels. They they got out intact. They had a record ready to go as soon as they got off the label, and you know, boom, and they they've, they've been off to the races. Uh, but I don't. I, I mean. Yeah, um, this stuff still exists, and the fact that, like, you know, it's Sunday night in New York City, and, you know, I'm sure within 100 miles of here, there's 20 hardcore shows about to start in someone's basement. That's great. But, um, mm-hmm. you know, I feel like in a truly just and perfect world, there would be no Taylor Swift, Nickelback, Creed, you know, all that shit. So, so, so interestingly enough, Taylor Swift just played two sold-out shows in Columbus this week. Of course she did. Yeah, <laughs> like I mean, for for all I know, I'm not I'm not sure I've actually. I mean, I'm sure I've heard Taylor Swift, but like I've never. I, I mean, I might actually like her. I don't. I don't fucking know. But I mean, that thing, you know, it just, it just bums my shit. You know, I mean, and I, I I'm sorry that I'm not savvy enough. Actually, let me just do this. MTV uh, Video Award winners. I'm sure if I look at this list, I'll get really pissed off. Um, <laughs> uh, let's see. Uh, da, 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 da. What? Uma Thurman? What? Wait, no, no, that can't be right. <laughs> wait, wait <laughs> Fall, Fallout Boy is still around? Is that right? Oh yes, yeah. They are. They had a, wow. How about single. that? Yeah. All right. Well, I should just shut the fuck up because, yeah. like, you know, like great grandpa's gonna get really pissed off. But yeah, along. you got to well, hear I, that Uma that Uma Thurman song though. It uses the riff from the Monsters theme song yeah. as the main yeah. riff throughout the song. It's very strange. It's yeah. strange because it's used in a way where you're like, dude. Oh, Bruno have... Mars. Yeah, Bruno Mars. Jesus Christ. That fucking guy. I'm sorry. It's used in a way what? Well, that, when you hear the sample, you're like, hey, you could have just written a surf guitar riff that kind of sounded like that and probably not paid whoever wrote that song. Yeah, the, but the sample. Yeah, too, 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 too hard. Too hard. I know. <laughs> uh, I, I wanted to talk about Rebellion a little bit. Um, sure. Uh, 80s and I felt like at least in pop music, there was some sense of rebellion, whether it was fake and packaged or not. There was at least, I don't know, it felt like pop music had at least um, a small uh, part of it that was either rebelling against some social cause or or or, or something. Even, uh, But now it seems completely absent. Like the last 15 years, you know, I, I would, you know, I would argue the world has gone through as much fucked up stuff as it went through in the 80s. And you hear nothing. Nobody says anything about anything. And I mean, even in, I think, a lot of um, underground music, it, it's more of there's general anger, um, but nobody's o- overtly political or there's a lot less of it. Um, and certainly in pop music, there's none. I mean, the most, like, I think rebellious thing you hear in pop music is like sexually crude hip hop. And that's about it. I mean, everybody else is just essentially has nothing to say in terms of anything rebelling against. Um, you know, well, I mean, it really depends arts. on what you mean by like pop music and what rebellion was in the eighties. Because um, I don't know, was Bruce Springsteen rebellious? Was hair metal rebellious or political? Was um, you know, were the Thompson Twins? I mean, like, was Men at Work? I mean, well, these were the big these were the big bands. You could even make like, an argument with hair metal you, because they were brought up on Capitol Hill and accused of you know yeah. the PMRC no, they, well, going no, after no, them. You're, and you're, you're, you're talking about Wasp. I mean, like. The, the uh, twisted sister like and poison, yeah, but 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 that but that's all, that, that's all. You, you and I know that that's basically bullshit. And it wasn't like Twisted Sister came out with a radical income redistribution <laughs> idea, and we are going to censor their music. And it was like, yeah, no, they made these preposterous videos. Um, 
I see. See, I can't. I, I'm not, you know, encyclopedic enough about pop music now to answer that, you know. But I'm convinced that, you know, if you or I were to dig beneath the surface, we'd find a lot of incredibly political, like hardcore bands that are really pissed off. And, you know, it, it remains to be seen how good they are, you know, as, as music, which is honestly the main thing I care about, but you know, it's, it's still gotta be there. And, um, I, I mean, I just honestly don't know about like pop music and rock music right now to identify rebellion, but in the eighties, you know, well, there's, there's two separate things. Cause I feel like you, the question started out talking about rebellion mm-hmm. and then I went to politics. And if you're talking about politics, I mean, you know, I like, like Bruce Springsteen wasn't calling for the government to be overthrown, you know, like, um, you know, U2 wasn't calling for dope guns and fucking in the streets. I mean, like, like the, the 80s were, were pretty, they were pretty fucking boring on that front, you know, when it comes to that. You know, rebellion, I mean, you know, the, 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 there's always rebellion. Um, and, you know, you, you tend to find it on the edges. You know, uh, you know the, there is a very well-defined and incredibly um, arcanely defined, you know, metal underground, you know. Uh, I'm sure if we were to dig into like the lyrics of like a bunch of like reasonably popular death metal bands right now, we'd, we'd be like, wow, this is pretty interesting. I I just don't, I just can't say as I could in the nineties. Well, there's drop dead from Providence, Rhode Island, you know, like they're an incredibly confrontational political band. That's amazing. Um, uh, you know, there's the X from Holland, you know, who, by the way, are still around, you know, there's dog faced Hermans, you know, I mean, I, I just, I just don't know who those bands are now, but I just have to believe that they still exist um, somewhere. I think it's kind of dangerous to assume that they're not. And the mainstream always generally sucks. You know, I mean, it's it's really. Uh, I mean, I kind of kick myself for saying that because I'm looking at my records right now, and there's a shit ton of Led Zeppelin records, and those are great records, you know. Um, but ge- I think we all understand instinctively if we're if we're talking and if you're listening to this, that the the really exciting stuff is not going to be on the radio. You know, there, there, there are moments when that stuff, when, when the planets align and you get ACDC, um, Led Zeppelin, uh, I'd say even maybe some of Madonna's songs. I thought, I thought she was some great songs, you know, like, uh, I don't think public enemy really crossed over, but if I was savvy about hip hop, I'd be able to like, um, I know shit all, I know fuck all about hip hop, but you know, <laughs> wow, this is terrible. Like 15 or 16 years ago, I bought the Marshall Mathers LP and I was like, this is this guy is good. This guy's really good. I, I, I can't, I can't front on him and he knows what the fuck he's doing. So I lost track of what I was saying. Get me out of here. Help. <laughs> <laughs> Dig me um, out guys. <laughs> so you don't think, you don't think kids are lame now. Cause I was starting to, to think that like, Oh God, it, 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 it's so rebellion if, is now if we, like if we normcore. Start saying that, if we, if we start saying that <laughs> I, I, it just gets so bad so fast. Um, I, I don't know. I'm not a kid. I, I don't yeah. have a kid. Um, and by the way, if I did have a kid, I wouldn't know until like he was building a fucking bomb in his bedroom, you know, <laughs> and nor would you. Um, yeah. The way that people communicate is still, I mean, like you don't, it, it you know, we, we don't know what people are talking about. Um, it, you, I just think it's really dangerous to think that it's not there just because it's not really visible. Because honestly, right. when it was visible, it wasn't really there. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, I, never mind. Carry on. <laughs> I, I want to get into something parallel to what Jay was saying. You bring it up in the book about you kind of had like a, a, a your, an eyes opening moment when you moved to New York. Um, I guess it was at the beginning of the two thousands. Uh, well, and... no, I, I I lived in New York for a very long time. Like I, I've I've lived here pretty much forever. But um, 
Yeah, in the late, you know, like nineteen ninety nine, two thousand, like I okay. just became aware of dance music and stuff like that, and and sort of how rock music had become desexualized, essentially, and that it had lost its swagger, I guess you'd say. Where you know, obviously, you mentioned Led Zeppelin. Led Zeppelin had a lot of sexuality, sure, uh, in their music, and um, I was, you know, one of the things we struggle with um, in this show is. Jay and I, having grown up in the 80s, and Chip as well, we all have an appreciation for various, well, better described as hair metal bands, even though we're also, you know, love a lot of stuff that was the opposite of that in the 90s. But it almost seemed as if, in reading your book, it it made a connection for me that, you know, there's a lot of reaction to 80s metal, that that it was this overblown, you know, ridiculous cartoon metal that was going on, and quote unquote indie rock whatever you want to define that as was this reaction to it it was gonna, it was going to tear it down and it essentially you know from 91 to 92 that's what happened all those bands became the not priority on their labels and fell off the face of the earth and you have nirvana and the story goes from there but it also in the same way also kind of killed a lot of that sexual tension that was in music in the 80s that there were a lot more women going to shows in the eighties, going to those metal shows because those guys, there was like a, a a component to those bands that made them. They were bad boys, but they weren't threatening. Right. Exactly. Yeah. That's where I was trying to go with that. So it almost seems like the thing that indie rock was trying to kill, which was those bands was the thing that ended up killing them in the end. Wow. Uh, man, that, that, that's, that's a really interesting way to put a bow on it. Um, I mean, so all I can say, well, there's a lot I can say, um, but (laughs) what what I'm thinking is this. Um, so unlike you guys, I didn't, I I was not a big fan of hair metal. I mean, I think it comes through in the book and, um, Mm -hmm. indie, the, the, the kind of bands that we're talking about, like the sort of, you know, weird, smart, um, off-center bands that came about in the, the 80s. Um, I don't know, man. Like, like it, it, speaking from, so, so just from where I stood, like, you know, it was just such a fucking bummer when, like, the only channels that existed were playing, like, the romantics, you know, and men at work and, like, all these really crappy hair metal bands. Sorry, guys. Once I get past Round and Round by Rat, it just goes down way fucking fast. <laughs> and you know that's an amazing song. Um, so, and it was just so, like, infuriating because, you know, I almost felt as if they were lying somehow. Like, like it, it, it just felt false and put on. It felt like it was all show and it just had nothing, it had no connection to my life. It had no connection to what I was feeling. And it was, and I was just so dying for someone to put it into words or not, not even words, just like to capture it in music. And I just wasn't getting any of it. So I think that, you know, you know, it was partly an aesthetic of necessity. Like, you know, no one could afford like a giant stage set and costumes and to primp ourselves, you know, like we're, we're going from town to town in vans, but we didn't fucking want to because that stuff felt so bankrupt at that point. You know I mean? It, it just didn't even seem like it was worth aping. Um, the thing about so it, it's funny what you mentioned about more women going to those shows because you know if you listen to those lyrics they did those bands did not have the most evolved view of women but you know uh, whatever I mean you know they, they were writing you know big commercial pop songs which draw mm-hmm. big commercial pop audiences you know which tend to 
get to closer to gender parity. Um, I think as time wears on, and it, you know, you do see a lot more participation by women in the indie scenes. I mean, there were definitely more women in indie bands than there were in like you know mainstream bands in the eighties. And as you know, and certain scenes, you know, um, got very you know increasingly. Um, you got increasing female representation. I'm sorry, guys. It's been a long day, and I'm like talking like a fucking idiot here. But That's you okay. know, and, and like, and the, 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 these these are bands as varied as Sleater Kinney, who I like a lot, and Tsunami, who I didn't really much care for. You know, but it was clear they they made it really clear that you could be a woman in a band, and maybe it didn't even matter that you were a woman in a band. You just happened to be a musician who happened to be female, and um, and so so you know that was really cool. Now the the, the problem as you identify is that. You know, if we're like, okay, we're going to be real, we're going to be serious, we're going to be authentic, you know, um, if you tie that in with a lot of other things, you know, like we, we weren't the most socially adept people in the world necessarily. We were children of the AIDS generation. Um, so, you know, in the back of your head, there was, you couldn't be as carefree about sex as people were in the 60s and 70s. I was really aware of that um, where I went to college and everyone else was really aware of it too. Um, it was kind of a bummer actually, but I mean, th- those were the times, you know, people were actually dying from fucking, you know, I mean, it's, it sounds weird, but it's true. And it was a really fucking horrible way to go. And I don't know, like it, it, the hedonism of the seventies and eighties just felt really played out and bankrupt, you know, and that is a noble instinct. You know, eventually if you let yourself be painted into a corner it becomes really stifling as I experienced it happening with, you know, indie rock in the nineties. And it was such a relief to be like, here's a different kind of music. Here's a different way to be with music, you know? And, and by the way, if you actually do your crate digging as you're supposed to, like, you know, there's a lot of really fucking crazy and amazing disco out there. I mean, the signal to noise ratio is really brutal, but I mean, if like the, the, this, the best stuff I found is like, you know, I, I will put up, um, uh, fuck, 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 fuck. The song Hills of Kathmandu by Tantra, like the groove they have going, I'll put that up with anything candid ever, you know. The song Weekend by Freak, P-H-R-E-E-K, um, you know, the, the, the break in that and the build is just, it's just crazy. It's, it's like this unbelievable fucking thing. It's just, it's amazing orchestration. It's great. Uh, I, I didn't know about any of that stuff and I kind of needed to discover something new and I kind of needed to get out of my indie rock bullshit you know, and luckily I was with a bunch of other friends who were kind of doing the same thing. Um, and so we we're able to do it together, which is the best way, as I think you guys know, to discover any kind of music scene. Do, do you follow any uh, indie rock? Like, do you, do you still like read magazines? Um, um, uh, you know, if my friends aren't in the bands, I'm kind of, you know, out of it, honestly. I mean, I, I am deeply interested in the music I'm interested in. Um, but because of the internet, like I can speak, I can go down a YouTube K-hole of be like, all right, like I'm going to type in this um, obscure, I'm making this shit up, you know, Yugoslavian punk rock band from 1983. I'm going to listen to it and then I'm going to go by the YouTube right rail and see what it leads me to. I'm just going to go down that. Like I'm very happy to spend two hours doing that, but uh, I cannot, this is not a noble thing and I'm not proud of it. I'm trying to remember the last show I went to where a friend of mine wasn't on stage. Yeah, yeah I'm, like still, I'm still trying to think of it. Yeah, no, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, and uh, yeah, I'm not proud That's of a rare it, thing I mean, once you hit 40. 
Yeah. Well, I, I got friends who I think are still doing it, um, and I'd like to still be doing it, but, you know, I'm in my 40s. I'm married. I like seeing my wife. You know, like, mm-hmm. it turns, I, I have a job that I'm really into, but you know what? It turns out that, you know, I work with words. I'm, I'm an editor, and I find it really distracting if I'm listening to music that has a lot of changes in it or has words in it, so that kind of narrows what I can listen to at work. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, stuff I've, like that. I'm, that. That said, I'm still the weird middle-aged dude who's you know, playing Voivod in his office. So go figure. <laughs> I'll just, I'll just give you a, a recent experience. I went to see Swerve Driver on their yeah. reunion tour. And it was basically what you just, it was like 50 guys all in their early to mid forties. It was like two women there. And it was at a club here in Columbus. And it was great because it was Swerve Driver playing in a club. Yeah. It was tiny. I mean, they had been playing much bigger shows on this tour, but it was basically like the exact audience that you would expect at this time, and I and we were all like, you know, had our phones with us and taking pictures and yeah. that kind of periscoping it and all that kind of thing. And but by like eleven o'clock, I was like, Jesus, I want to go home and go to bed. Like, yeah, I gotta well, go to work. It's a Tuesday night. I want to go home. Yeah, please. I love these songs, but I gotta go. <laughs> gotta go. I gotta <laughs> go. Faster or something. I'm surprised there were more women there. Um, you know, because Swerve Driver were, were pretty pop as I remember them. But uh. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I wouldn't trade anything for the Bitch Mountain reunion shows we did, but, you know, we played generally to crowds that looked a lot like me. And you know what? That's fine. <laughs> I'm fucking grateful for everyone, every person that was there, you know? Um, but, you know, I think you, as a musician in a band doing a reunion, you can probably suss out pretty quickly if, like, will this have legs? You know, like, and the short answer is mm, no. Like, there, there isn't necessarily a new generation discovering you. And, you know, whatever. That's fine. The, I'm totally comfortable with the way that the Bishop Manor reunion stuff ended. Was there any material, just out of curiosity, that was... Did you guys basically exhaust the vaults in terms of recorded music when you put out their reissues? Yeah, well, no. Um, but, there's a very big but. There's basically like cassette demos that were... There is pre-Star Booty stuff that we recorded um, mostly without Orestes. If you look for it on the internet, you can find it. The world is no poorer for it not being widely available. Let's just say <laughs> that. I mean, it, it's, it's just not that good. Um, and it's, it's not even, and I'm, I'm not being like, oh, it's not perfect. I mean, it's, you, trust me, it's not that good. Like, um, I wasn't very good. The, you know, we, we hadn't quite gelled yet. Um, Su Young hadn't really made his great leap as a songwriter yet, but I mean, if if you search, you can find stuff. So when you guys started doing the the practices for the, I think you were out in Calgary for some of that when you were. Um... Uh, Calgary, Vancouver, Seoul, New York. Was there any jamming outside of what the songs were, where you thought, um, "Hey, this might be a new song"? Unfortunately, no, no. Um, honestly, we we. Uh, how to put this? Suyoung hadn't played bass in a long time, hadn't played music in a long time, hadn't sung in a long time, and unfortunately, like Suyoung's life, Suyoung um, runs a decent-sized company that does um, programming for apps and builds databases. I mean, he's he travels a lot. He's fucking busy, um, you know. So we we had to spend all of our time just kind of getting stuff, you know, ready. Um, there was talk at some point of maybe doing something. That talk went by the wayside. Uh, Suyoung and Arrestes uh, formed a band called Board Spies that is 
they put out a single, I think. Yeah, they, they, there's some stuff that there's floating around. Orestes and I have talked about stuff. Um, we've both been busy, and we just haven't gotten around to it. It just seemed like that would be the opportunity to do like a seven inch for record store day or something like that. Like, you know, a lot of bands that do reissues, sometimes they'll just throw one new extra song. Oh no, I mean, totally. Um, But we were dealing with somewhat unusual circumstances. You know, I I made the joke. So, 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 so here's the thing. When we were talking about reuniting, um, I lived in New York. Orestes lived in Calgary and Si Young lived in Singapore. You know, that just to get us in a room together practicing costs thousands of dollars. And so, you know, I, I was making the joke to people like, you know, look, when Missioner Burma decided to get back together, they all had a beer together and like, they went down to the bar that was 10 minutes from their house. Like, we, we had to cross 10 time zones to like be in the same room. And that unfortunately, you know, it's not like, you know, hey, we'll have an extra practice next Tuesday and we'll bang out a new song. It's like, We've got four days before we, that, that we've carved out of our lives to do this. So, like, we've just got to get our shit together as best we can. And honestly, you know, uh, I don't think we really hit our stride until, uh, in terms of, like, being able to deliver it on a night-to-night basis until the, until the American tour, really. Well, no, no. The, 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 the show we did in Singapore was one of the best shows we ever played. But, yeah, so... Like the first round of reunion shows, like kind of wasn't that great. We we still had some. We still needed to get it together more. In the same way that, like, I love Missioner Burma more than anything else. And um, when I saw their first reunion show, like their their first reunion show in New York, at which they've been practicing for, I was like, I love this. I'm thrilled. I can't believe I'm seeing these songs, and they're not. It's not all the way there. Like, it feels like half a step off. P.S. Then I saw them a couple years later, and they just blew the fucking doors off. I mean, they they just need more time to get it together. Um, right? Did you yeah. have any doubts at any point? Did you feel like this isn't gonna this isn't gonna work? It's been too long. These songs are too. I mean, because I, I mean, music's yeah. fairly complicated. It's not like you're playing three chord riffs here. I mean, yeah, it's well, it's it's not it's not that complicated. I mean, like we're not talking about like crazy classical music or like you know Meshuggah. Mm-hmm. Um, but. I, I don't know how to answer that because, like, I was so determined. And, and the, the other thing was that the, there was never really a maybe to it. You know, we agreed to do a gig for all tomorrow's parties. You know, we th- there was a decent-sized check attached to it. You know, like, we, we were going to fucking do it. You know, like, the, 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 it was not an optional thing. And honestly, like, by it not being optional was, was how it happened because, like, we had to make it work. And we did, and like it was, there was never a doubt in my mind. Like I was gonna fucking do this. Like I, w- I was absolutely gonna fucking do this. If I had to fly, you know, if I had to take another week to go to someone's city and like tutor them one on one, or like you just practice with them, like I would have fucking done it. Whatever it took, I was really into it. Why is that? I really wanted to do it. I mean, you know, like when once the idea was presented and we realized it was doable, I got really fucking into it. I was like, I was, was kind of like, how can we not do this? Mm. I mean, like, I love these songs, you know, I, I love this band, I, I love being on tour, you know, we're grown-ups now, all the bullshit's behind us, like, we, we still enjoy hanging out with each other, like, how can we not do this? Like, there, there are people in Asia that want us to, there are people in Asia that want us to play, mm-hmm. you know, we'll actually get paid for doing these shows, like, how can we not fucking do this? I mean, it's like the greatest thing, you know, I mean, like, playing live music, playing rock music live is just, it's just fucking awesome. I can't remember if you addressed this in the book or not, but when you were doing the U.S. dates, um, even at a, at, a, at a local level in Columbus, when there's bands that were around back uh, late 80s, early 90s that get together 
and do these reunion shows, um, they're not drawing the same size crowds and or the same people that uh, were diehards back in the day. And, and it's all that, you know, I have a job, I have kids, I can't make it out. Were you experiencing any of that of like expecting to play with all of your old friends and hearing all the excuses from people? Oh, well, I mean, that, that happens, but you know, we, we had a really varied, um, experience in terms of, uh, turnouts, like in New York city, there were dimensionally more, we paid, I can't even talk. We played La Paul Saint Rouge, which allegedly holds a thousand people, which sounds like a lot. I've seen that room, but whatever. Um, there were dimensionally more people in that room. You know, there was like a multiple of people in that room more than had ever seen us at any one show in New York before. Um, but, you know, we also played Seattle where we never played before on like a rainy Sunday night. And there were, I don't know, 50 people there. Uh, you know, as I say in the book, I thought there were going to be more people at the Chicago show than there were. But, you know, I... I mean, I can't complain about any of this. I mean, it was just it was just so crazy to be able to do it again. And it was so meaningful. Like the the vibe I got back from the audience and the, the stuff people said to us afterwards. I mean, it was just crazy. Like really moving. Really fucking deeply moving. Um I'm still kind of shocked it all happened. You write in the book about in terms of your gear, about um high watt amps. Yeah, all, all the way. All and the way. So were you playing those back at the beginning? Of of bitch magnet, I was playing really shitty amps for a really long time. But right before we recorded Umber, I bought my first high watt head um, from like the the real ones, four inputs, uh, original era, and that's it's been that ever since. I've got that. I've got two of those. I've got one orange 80 head, which is really great for a very specific kind of power chord and which I've used on a bunch of records. Yeah. I've ever, ever since then I've, I've used that pretty much flat out on the American tour. I couldn't use it, uh, because believe it or not, like luggage restrictions changed and it would have become exorbitant to fly around with it. Like at that point. So, I uh, I borrowed in a lot of cities. I was able to use a high watt in Chicago because someone had one. I used mine in in the New York shows. I I borrowed something else in uh, Seattle and San Francisco. And then way you more play, than by the you way, play way more Paul? than you know. I play I play less balls. Yeah, I, I had as you know from reading the book a Yamaha SG three thousand, which I loved very much, and which met an untimely end at our at the first Pitch Magnet reunion show in Tokyo. Actually, I, I guess I should uh, describe that for people who haven't read the book. Um, so the first Pitch Magnet reunion show in Tokyo, which was our second reunion show ever, was like really a nightmare. It was, it was a really bad show. All my gear was fucking up. And at the end of it, you know, like I kind of jammed my guitar down on the guitar stand, this Yamaha SG3000. And I didn't see this happen, but it fell and like the headstocks, the headstock snapped in a really unfixable place like it snapped not like where the neck was cracked but like the headstock snapped between the tuner so it was like kind of split in two in a really weird way and i was so bummed out i was really bummed out but then i got this idea and i was like well i've always wanted to do this so there was a bar upstairs from the venue where everyone gathered and i just took the busted guitar and i went up there and i kind of waved it in the air and i just smashed it into a million pieces which is really fucking fun like that's really great, and and people people really like it when you smash guitars. They they go fucking crazy. 
Um, but I, but I, I missed that guitar, and I'm still uh, I still I, I was trying to find another one, but they're they're kind of hard to find. And um, they're expensive. Those are like two to three thousand dollar. Well, every everything guitars. is a two to three. I, I, I bought that for five hundred bucks. Um, yeah, everything's a two or three thousand dollar guitar now. Basically, that that's you know like a serious guitar like that. Um, I wanted to find another one because I need to tour with two guitars, but I I just couldn't. I mean, I needed one in like a week, and uh, I ended up getting a another Les Paul, which I love. It's great. It's a Les Paul. You should check out. I don't know if you've ever uh, Reverb.com is a <laughs> website that I use for a lot of gear Ooh, purchasing. Boy. Yeah, I, it's I dangerous. Know, I it's it. a da- it's, is it's, as yeah, dangerous it's... as YouTube in terms of. Uh, well, the thing you... with the, the thing with guitars, though, like I would buy an amp over the internet, but like with a guitar, I feel you really got to play it because there's a lot of idiosyncrasy with each guitar, and like you know, I played. I mean, I I bought a used Les Paul. I was shopping in New York City for them. For a week, I played like 25 of them before I found one that I really liked and that the price was right on, you know? So, gotcha. Luckily, I won't be, bu- but of course, I just went to it right now. So, uh, <laughs> let's see. Search Yamaha. I'm sorry. I'm listening, guys. I swear. <laughs> <laughs> when you guys did the reissues, did you go actually go back and listen to like master tapes? I assume it was all on analog. I mean, that's 88. Uh, yes. There, there were, there was, there, all right, first of all, I, I lied. It was an Ama, uh, it was a Yamaha SG2000. Oh, a 2000. Okay, that's yeah, different. Yeah. Hey, I could get one for 1600 bucks. Okay, I'm done. Um, <laughs> are, are we all Googling Yamaha SG2000s right now? <laughs> we remastered everything from tape with the exception of Umber, which we had to remaster off digital. We did a complete remaster on that because we weren't that thrilled with how the sound of the American version of that came out. Um, and if I recall correctly, yeah, we actually did a out-and-out mixing from the unmixed masters of the song Sadie because we did not have a – we didn't even have a digital version of that. We didn't have anything, and we didn't want to just master it off CD. And actually, wait, that wasn't even on CD, so we didn't even have that option. So, yeah, so th- that's literally a completely remastered version from the original unmixed-down 8-track tapes. I'm just curious about a lot of times when bands have first albums or early recordings, the gear that they're using is not necessarily what they're happy with, or maybe the studio that they're in is not necessarily getting the sounds that they wanted. Were you guys content with, I guess, replicating, just punching up some of the sounds or were, was there thoughts of like, you know, this guitar part here could, it doesn't sound as, you know, exactly the way I wanted it to sound. And also that bands, as they play songs live can sort of start to alter things, you know, as you, as you go over them over years and years, was there any thought to like saying, well, you know, I I've played this guitar part differently now for X number of years. Maybe I could go back and, you know, alter it a little bit so that it matches what I'm playing live, what I prefer to play. Well, I mean, yes, songs do change, but you know, we all thought that, you know, we're doing the best possible version of these documents. Like, we're not fucking around. I'm not. I'm not adding any guitar solos or anything like that. You know, I mean, and you know, Star Booty is a really bad sounding record. I mean, it, it's just really shitty sounding. Um, like, and you know, there's just not a lot to be done with it. It's like, okay, this is what it sounds like. Yeah, the the guitar sound does sound like a giant fart. You know, I'm it. That that's how it sounded. You know, and, and I'm not going to go back and redo it now because it just seems. I mean, I recorded it when I was like this totally hopped up 19 year old. I mean, like it's important that that be, that's what should be represented, not what the, you know, the 40 something John Fine, not not like, no, check out the solo that I can play now. That's just, that just seems kind of like a bad idea to me. 
but even in terms of technology, I mean, how do you, it seems like, you know, there's a lot of possibilities now with mastering. Where do you draw the line or how do you set up guardrails of, you know, what's going too far and, you know, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, you don't move beats around. Um, I don't think we even had that option actually. I mean, you don't, you don't, you don't do anything radical really. Um, and if, if you're just remastering, you can't get that deep into the DNA. You kind of have to go back to the original unmixed masters, you know, to start changing, like, we're going to bring this guitar part way up and take the other one out mm. entirely. And, and, like, that's just, th th then it's something else entirely. And, like, we, you know, for a lot of reasons, we just didn't think that was the right thing to do. I'm kind of getting, like, hives even thinking about that as a possibility, to be honest with you. <laughs> In <laughs> that you direction ever... lies madness. Do, do you have a preference... Uh... In terms of, did you prefer playing live versus recording, writing and recording? Uh, I mean, they're both great, but, you know, the, playing live is always so much more of a dimensional experience because, like, you know, there's the live aspect to it. There's the audience. There, there's the energy exchange between the performer and audience. There's the way you're interacting in real time with the other musicians. You know, there's just, like, the atmospherics. Um, always loved it. Always loved Showtime. We had... Um... Clay Tarveron last year. Uh, from... Clay, yeah, he Clay did a book event with me for the for your band Socks in Los Angeles. He's a great dude, and and he mentioned, and I think you brought it up in the book about the difference between shows where the band brings the the energy and the shows where the audience brings the energy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that that that's a Clay thing. And um, I'm, God. how often how how often was that the case where you guys were going to a show? especially on like the reunion shows and like the people were obviously there, they were excited to see you as opposed to, you know, the early shows where you were sort of like, you know, going out and have to conquer. Well, I mean, you know, it, it's, it's, it's the difference between being an established band that's known and being like a first timer, you know I mean? There's a different level of expectation, um, but there's also people there. Um, I mean, we, we played to a lot of empty rooms and, mm -hmm. you know, thankfully that didn't really happen during the reunion. Um, there weren't a lot of people there at the Hong Kong show, but fuck, we got to play Hong Kong. I mean, like, you know, how could we not? Is that the first time you guys felt like an established band? Had you always been the Conquerors before that, before the well, reunion? Well, no, no. I mean... At least in terms of your mindset, when you got on stage, did you feel like you had to win everybody over? Or did you feel start to feel at some point before you broke up that... You know, people were coming to hear, you know, they knew who you were and were, had expectations of what they were going to see. The, yeah. the first time I felt that Bitch Magnet went out and people knew who we were, like, when we were touring on our third album, Ben-Hur, you know, which is 1990, you know, I, at that point, people knew who we were. It's not like there were a thousand people in every town or, every, or anything, but, you know, we weren't the first on a, on a bill of five, and it was like, oh, yeah, you guys, you know, thanks for coming, blah, 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 blah. And, and there were people there, so... But, you know, obviously it's different with a reunion because there's just a different level of expectation and, you know, people are really excited. You know, like, we, we didn't have a lot of fans, but we had fans who cared a great deal. And, you know, people were really excited. There were some people that were really excited in, like, 1990, but there were people who were very excited in 2011 and 2012. It was, like, crazy and amazing that they remembered. Um, and it was just different because, you know, I, I hate saying this shit, so, like, don't edit this so that I'm not saying the part where I know that it sounds really egotistical to say this because it does, but, you know, people got on planes to see us. You know, someone flew to Hong Kong from Taiwan to see us. Someone flew to Singapore from Australia to see us. For our last show in Chicago, people flew from 
Minneapolis and Los Angeles, or they drove six hours from Louisville or in Southern Indiana. Um, you know, I ran into guys in New York who came up from Atlanta. I mean, it was crazy, but they did that. And, you know, I mean, thanks. You know, to say the least, it's just astonishing to me. Do you think that's because there was a defined end? Whereas a lot of bands, you don't know when they're going to play their last show. So, well, no... I don't know about that because we kept saying over and over again, like, no, this is really it. And everybody, a lot of people are like, no, you're going to play more shows. We're like, no, actually, we're not. It's it's really complicated for us to do this. And like, we've kind of done it. Um, my my nephew, who's in college, who I adore, you know, he, you know, I was saying, OK, uh, we're playing New York and this is really your one shot. And he was like, no, nah, no, nah, I'm going to wait. You'll play again. I'm like, no, you don't understand. This is it. Like, we're not going to show up in, in Chapel Hill in two weeks. This is it. <laughs> um, I, I don't think it was that because, uh, I, I mean, I think people wanted to see it. You know what I mean? Like, you want to see it once. And I think you all know well enough that you never know. I mean, shit. I remember when, you know, Don Caballero was broken up for like two years in the 90s. And I heard they were playing a show in Washington, D.C., and I was like, I got to see this. This might be the last time I see them. You know, this was 1997 maybe. But it turns out they, they were, you know, just about to record What Burns Never Returns. And that became this entire second career. And I actually ended up playing with them. But, you know, I, I totally get that impulse. I was like, I'm, I got to see this. You know, you, you, you just never know. I mean, in 1985, I came home from fall break from college. And that night, the Minutemen were playing in New York City. I lived in New Jersey. And I was like, should I go? I'm like, ah, it's the Minutemen. I'm, I'm really tired, like, from midterms. Like, it's the Minutemen. They, they tour every six months. I'll see them again. Yeah. And then D. Boone gets in a fucking car accident and dies. I mean, you know, you, you know <laughs> sometimes you got to take advantage of your, uh, your opportunities. Right. I got to ask you about, um, in the book... This was something that uh, I, I noticed at least three times that came up. Um, you don't know, you don't like the Pixies, and <laughs> yeah. uh, Pixies that that runs counter to a lot of. I think actually Jay is probably on the same page as you. Um, I don't think Jay's uh, Jay never expressed much love for the Pixies, as far as I know. I'm like, okay. <laughs> I'm I'm not a, you know, yeah I'm not passionate about the band. Uh, they're fine. I guess I never quite got it. But anyway, um, so one of the things that you brought up is is that they had been on tour for quite a long time with the reunion and only put out the one song. Yeah. Um, now that they've actually put out an album in the last year, I think, does that change your I guess opinion as far as their motivations for? for touring for that long I, I i don't i don't necessarily begrudge the motivations for touring well i guess i kind of do i mean i think if it's if you're a band like that you know you should really be recording new music at a certain point it's not that fucking hard um but my thing with the pixies is i, I just i find them pretty dull i mean I, I just don't think they're an interesting band and when they were getting famous i was kind of puzzled because i was like you know, to me, they were a watered-down version of the bands I actually really liked. You know, I would have, I mean, like, I, I, I was like, why not Rifle Sport? You know, like, why not, I don't know, fill in the blank? Um, I, just, I just thought they were a less interesting version of the stuff that really excited me. 
And, you know, that seemed really, you know, clear to me because, you know, we all have our own unique musical reference points, but I, I just, I just didn't see the big deal and I still don't. And I, I just, yeah, I mean, they just really don't do anything for me. And I've always been kind of astounded that they've gotten as, that they become as much of a thing as they did. You know, I mean, they're, they're no Mission or Burma. You know, they're no Husker Du. They're no, you know, on down the line. And those are just the famous bands, you know, like. I, I think to the larger point was that I was kind of going to lead into was that, you know, a lot of bands from the 80s and early 90s or even mid 90s, I guess, that were considered quote unquote alternative or indie have reunited in the 2000s. You know, Dinosaur Jr. famously got mm-hmm. back together with Lou and Jay getting back together, which nobody yeah. I think ever thought that was going to happen. And they've put out a slew of really good records. Some of yeah. them probably as good as the best stuff they ever put out. Um, the, 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 the second Mission of Burma record, I think, is the best. Mission, I'm sorry, the second Mission of Burma reunion record, I think, is probably their best record. Is that or on one of their on? or one of their best records? Uh, no, it's uh, Obliterati. Okay. 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 Maybe, maybe not one of their best, but it's like yeah, so, some of the songs on that are like among their best songs. I mean, they're just they're crushing. It's great. And then there are, there are other bands like say, and this is an American band, but like the Stone Roses have re- reunited yeah. and played shows, but they haven't put anything out, and I don't think they probably ever will. But to a certain extent, do you think that you know guys like Ian Brown or or Frank Black? who did try to have solo careers kind of realized nobody cares about me as an, not nobody cares, but my ability to draw or sell records as an individual is overwhelmed by the fact that I was with these other people in this group and that the, really the only way I can continue to do this is to play in this band. And that that's the way that, you know, put the food on the table, so to speak for a lot of these people who are career musicians who have been doing this, you know, mm-hmm. for so long and are, are, you know, out on the road 300 days a year or whatever, that it has to do more with the fact that they were they own a solo brand. artists. Yeah. They have a brand name that they can actually work around. Cause even Jay Mass has put out great solo records, but they just don't have the same impact as a Dennis Virginia record. Yeah. I mean, because it, I mean, it, it turns out that, I'm trying to think of a good way to word this. It almost feels like, you know, the the longer rock has been around, the harder it is for, you know, the band to translate into a solo career at that level, at that same level. I mean, it it, it just seems like there's no connective tissue anymore. Um, and, you know, I can't speak for Jay Maskus, um, but I think that was certainly a calculation. I mean, you know, Dinosaur Jr. draws, you know, much bigger crowds than you know, Jay Maskus and the Fog or, you know, Lou Barlow or Sebado. I mean, it, it, that, it just, it just is what it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's true for a lot of these guys and, you know, and for people are making a living as a musician, you know, and, and that, that's something they got to think about. I mean, I'm, I think when I interviewed Lou Barlow for the book, I mean, he was pretty upfront about that. Yeah, actually that that's a good I had a question earlier when we were talking about it, but I didn't get to mm-hmm. it. You did interviews for the book, which is kind of unusual for a, a memoir. Usually, mm-hmm. if you do any interviews, it's people who are maybe you're helping jog memories or whatnot. But this is almost a um, half a memoir and then, or two thirds of a memoir, and then also sort of a, a a book that's a historical reference in terms of a, a particular scene that occurred. When did you decide that you didn't want to make it just a pure, you know, I'm speaking about the past type memoir? 
Uh, pretty early on, really, because um, I, I felt that, you know, to me, the book is about this cultural movement, cultural moment that is, I think, really significant and underdocumented in a lot of ways. And I just felt that just telling my story wasn't going to quite get at all of it. Like, if, if it was only me, there would have been nothing about you know, major labels and what would happen with the bands that tried to graduate and failed because I never fucking got there. I mean, like, there, there were no major labels banging down my door, dude. Um, and they, they, there was just so much more stuff. They, they, and then there were also the people who came before because, you know, we, we had some weird experiences on the road early on when people, you know, you'd play this music in, like in Youngstown, Ohio, they had no idea what to make of it and they get kind of upset. But, you know, <laughs> Like bands like Black Flag, like they faced actual violence, you know, like Mission to Burma had really weird things happen to them almost every night. I mean, I wanted to hear those stories and like and it's kind of impossible to understand this without understanding that. And I thought those stories, you know, needed to be told. Um, And I just wanted so desperately to get the story as right as I could. And I didn't think I could if it was just me. I felt like I needed to speak to all these other people and bring them in. Gotcha. If that answers the question, if that answers yeah. the question, what point did you make that decision that uh, uh, you sort of told the story about being sold on the book, which was sounded like it was very much a memoir focused on you? When did you decide to make it broader? Honestly, uh, I mean, I could dig up the proposal right now, but I'm pretty sure in the proposal, in fact, I, yeah, I, even even at that point, I was like, and I will supplement this with other interviews because it just yeah. it just felt like. And I mean, I wrote the proposal right after I had lunch with this guy. Because, for instance, like early on, I thought I wanted to tell a story of, and I do it in slightly, but I thought I wanted to have an entire chapter on Urge Overkill. They were friends of mine, you know, it looked like they were going to be really huge, and they weren't, and there was like a lot of collateral damage to them, um, to, to their, you know, careers. I mean, it kind of stopped. And I think it kind of played a number on their heads. And I wanted to hear about that. So, like, you know, that that was in there from the beginning. So I was like, all along, I was like, I'm going to talk to people. Uh, and, you know, so I, I drew up a big-ass list, and I got to, and I talked to more than 60, I think, all told. Uh, you know, there, there's some people I wish I'd talked to that I, you know, that I didn't get to in one form or another. But life is like that sometimes. Did any, when you were doing the interviews, did anything, the themes emerge that you didn't expect or new insights? Uh, yeah, um, a lot more people shit their pants on tour than I'd ever thought. Because <laughs> one of my standard questions was, what's the grossest thing that happened on tour? And like yeah. six people were like, I shit my pants or, well, the drummer shit his pants. Um, oh. and, I was, and I was like, wow, that, that's pretty fucking extreme, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, yeah, so that... Um, uh, what else? I hadn't really, I don't think I had a full sense of the kind of reckoning that people went through in like 1997 and 1998 when all the major cities, because of the Clinton era stock market boom, all the major cities started getting more expensive and it basically priced all of us out, you know, like unless you, your band had made some sort of great leap, you know, at that time, you know, everybody was breaking up or quitting, you know, like, um, and it was people that I talked to, you know, Mark Robinson and unrest, um, and Eichelberg and the thinking fellers who told me so many amazing stories. Oh my God. The story that Ann Eichelberg told me about, they, they went on tour opening for that horrible band live. Do you remember them? Mm-hmm. She, oh my fucking God. 
who thought of that? Thinking Feller's opening for live. So she was, she told me this amazing story about it. Like, and it was, it was so great that I pretty much printed it verbatim, like this entire page, you know, people were throwing shit at them, you know, and you know, the, the, one of the guys in live would like breeze up to them backstage and like pull out a copy of billboard and show them with, show them the chart with lives album being number one. And he'd be like, I'm just showing this to you because I can. I mean, like just horrible shit like that. And yeah, but, but, but at the end of it, which, which I really liked was like, she tells her these sort of like hilarious, tragic stories. And she's like, but you know, like two or three days into it, we were like, you know what? Like, this is never going to happen for us. Like we're, we're too weird. We're not right. Like this can't happen. Um, that shit is really fascinating to me. Like I, ne- I never, I never got to a place like that. I can't I mean, remember. I never got you go. I'm sorry. I was going to say, I can't remember if you mentioned it in the book or not. Um, how did that tour even happen? They have, they share a booking agent or they, they, you know, it was during the time when that kind of thing was happening and thinking fellers and Anne in particular, you know, they, they were smart they, and they, they were always like, you know, how can we do this better? You know, not like how are we going to write our huge hit, but rather like we're this band, this is our thing. Like, how can we get it in front of new people that might like us? And, you know, they, they were starting to play around with the idea of opening for um, like some giant major label bands. And she said, like, really idiotic. Like, the only ideas coming to them were idiotic, like Toad the Wet Sprocket, who I don't think I've <laughs> ever heard, but, you know. And, and finally, she said, like, they, someone offered them live and they were just like, fine, whatever, we'll do it. So they did like a bunch of outdoor shows with them. Uh, what I believe in called in the trade is a shitty cities tour, which is like second and third tier markets. And people fucking hated them, you know. And, you know, and the guy from live would like come up to them the next night and be like, you know, uh, I cracked open the window in the tour bus when you guys were playing last night. You sounded OK. <laughs> I mean, like like just horrible shit like that. I mean, that th- th- that's just so rich and vivid and beautiful. And like, I don't think that story has really been told before. And I'm, I'm just endlessly fascinated with that. Well, that makes a lot of sense considering the current state of live, which is they kicked the lead singer out of the band and. Who is I, uh, you I, know, the I, next generation Bono? And uh, God, yeah, and even more annoying, Jesus, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That band wow. might have sold more records in the '90s that have now more re- like been resold back than any <laughs> other band. So, so, so because... somewhere there's there's warehouses full of live uh, used live CDs. Well, the 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 great like collector of that is there's a chain called half price books i don't know if you're familiar uh-huh. with them but they have a a, a warehouse here in columbus mm-hmm. and once a year they do or maybe twice a year they do a a clearance sale and yeah. they go to a convention center and they lay out all the stuff that's like not selling and cds will be a dollar vinyl will be a dollar books will be like two bucks and there were more copies of throwing copper I was going to say, if I need 500 copies of Throwing Copper, I know where to go. <laughs> yeah, that and like R.E.M.'s Monster and Hootie and the Blowfish, Cracked View Mirror, Cracked Rear yeah, View Mirror, or whatever that crack, one was. Cracked Rear View for sure, because I think that, that, you know, that, it's funny, like Anne Eichelberg of The Thinking Fellers, I believe, I, I think I read her say this in another fan, in a fanzine interview where she said, um, she was describing, I, I want to get this right. The kind of band that people who don't actually like music like, you know, so it's like mm-hmm. it, it's it, it and Hootie and the Bluefish is that it's like it's, you know, there were people that had bought five CDs in their life and one of them was Hootie and the Bluefish and eventually they sold their fucking five CDs because like, who cares, you know, and so, yeah, I, I totally believe that.
because Hootie and the Blowfish were the epitome of a band that that are liked by people who don't actually like music. I totally agree with that. So. That's that that's probably how Nickelback survives. <laughs> There's a lot of them out there. There's a lot of them. I will say though that Half Price Books that clearance sale was a gold mine for re- reinvigorating my 90s catalog because I found like a lot of weird stuff that people clearly didn't know what it was. Like oh yeah, a, totally. Yeah. Like a suede uh album was like a double disc that I didn't even know came out. And I was like, oh, okay. Now I got my Britpop filled up for uh <laughs> the next couple of weeks. I can listen yeah, to that, this. That, that, that'll that'll carry you for a while. Yeah. Where are we at? We're at like an hour and a half now, I think. Yeah. Keith I, uh... Keith. Chip. Uh Jay. <laughs> Who the fuck is Keith? Keith, Keith is our other member that was is oh, here. Okay. <laughs> it's is been Keith a long not day. Here or is Keith here? Keith is not. Keith was here for the last one okay, of our last right. interviews. I was thinking, like, did I just insult someone who was there that I just didn't? No, know. no, no. It's been lurking it's, in the back. Keith, it's wanna, been a long day. I got. A, I had a very cranky three-year-old today, so oh, I'm, uh, I'm I'm getting a little bit uh get a little punchy right now. Jay, what were you gonna say? Uh, last question I had was a uh, uh, read an article. I th- <laughs> I think it was you. It was credited to uh to a Joan J O N E fine. Hmm. Um, about uh, hearing issues. Yeah, yeah that's me. A... Yeah, t- yeah, in, in the Atlantic. Yeah, yeah. The there, Atlantic. There's, a, there's an expanded version of that chapter in the book. Okay. Yeah, they uh, they got the credit wrong on the website, but um, I just wanted to check in on uh, sort of how you were coping with that, and um, you know, sort of, I guess when people, maybe if you talk to anybody getting in a band now, what's your point of view on? on uh, whether they, what they should be doing in terms of, of their hearing or not. Um, well, do whatever the fuck you want, but if you don't wear some kind of ear protection, you're probably going to like have problems later. Yeah. Although, I don't know. I mean, I've I talked to a lot of people for the... Uh, pull the cord out, sorry. Um, I talked to a lot of people for the book, and like I talked to Tim Midget of Silkworm, who toured forever, and he was like, I never used uh, ear protection, and my ears are fine, I get them checked. I'm like, all right, more power to you. Mm-hmm. My ears are kind of fucked up. I mean, like, I've got tinnitus. Um, you know, I sleep, I live in the city, and I've gotten in the habit of sleeping with earplugs in, and, you know, sometimes I'll have, like, two tones going in one ear, which is kind of crazy-making. Um, it is what it is. Um, I took my chances, and th- these are the scars I got from it. I can't say I really regret it. But, uh, you know, talk to me in 10 years. It might be really awful. Yeah. I, mean, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what to say. It's, yeah, so it's a personal decision. You have to decide whether, whether it's worth the risk or not for each person. Yeah, I mean, I was transported to places that a lot of people don't see from yep. extreme volume and unprotected ears. I don't regret that. Um, but it, it takes a toll. And it, it doesn't seem to uh take a toll equally some people are just more sensitive to it than others uh and if you go by what i feel like we were told by doctors and audiologists like we should all be completely deaf by now like they're like oh my god like if if you hear something more than 90 decibels for an hour you could lose hearing i'm like 90 decibels like i can i can burp louder than that that's nothing i mean like like i'm talking 120 125 dude and a lot of trouble but uh you know we've all been there Jay, you didn't use earplugs when we played, right? No. And one of the things that, uh, and I would get ear fatigue, like I would uh, start to get symptoms. But if I backed out for a while and just kind of took a break, especially with shitty headphones, seemed to hurt my ears more than playing in a band. Um, 
it got fine. But there was a time when I started thinking like, I don't know if I could deal with this, a lifetime of this. <laughs> Just in terms of, you know, hearing ringing that you can't get rid of. But it also made me think like, we live in terms of technology, we live in pretty amazing times um, in terms of, you know, what we're, what we're able to do. And the fact that we don't have some sort of, you know, hearing device that can control volume without completely muffling it is, is kind of insane. <laughs> They, 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 they do make they do make earplugs that have an even frequency cut. I've I've never gotten them um, yeah. for whatever reason. I'm I'm actually used to playing with earplugs that cut out a lot of the high end and it's fine. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, it does exist. I don't know how much volume they cut out. And like, if they only cut out ten decibels, like, okay, when we get going, it's 120 decibels. It's not really going to help me that much. Right. I played with one, and it was the one that when I was that was the drummer was on my right. So I played yeah. with one in my right, just because that, he was that, so loud. That doesn't that doesn't that doesn't really do it. I got to tell you. Well, my my hearing's pretty much okay. I have a little bit of trouble in restaurants when it's loud hearing the people. Yeah. that's the only issue. Yeah, I have that issue. My wife that, thinks I have could, worse hearing than I do. That's just because that's also just because she could be right. Getting old. <laughs> it uh, is getting yeah, yeah, but it, but it, but it accelerated. I have I have problems in noisy restaurants, um, and I blow my voice out because of it, which is really annoying. Tim touched on, I guess, the, the, the other last question I have, which is, uh, this can be just a, a quick confirmation, but does a good drummer make the difference between a shitty band and a good band? I think you kind well, of touch on it in the book. Well, a good drummer isn't going to make a band that's terrible in every other way good. But a, you know, I mean, a not good drummer will hold a a band back, you know, let me rephrase that. An adequate drummer will hold a a band back. I mean, you know, to give you one for instance, I mean, I'm not a huge Nirvana fan, okay, but um, I think they made a giant leap when they went to a major label and released Nevermind. And part of that is because Kurt had a couple of giant pop songs up his sleeve, you know, which is fine. But the other thing is that they got fucking Dave Grohl. I mean, like, that brought their game up a fuck ton, you know, mm-hmm. it, 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 and you, you know, you can just, you can just tell, I mean, I, I'm trying to think of any other examples. Um, I don't think there are any, there are no Soundgarden records. Are there any Soundgarden records without Matt Cameron? Cause that, that'd be another good test case. Mm-hmm. I'm not a huge Soundgarden fan, but Matt, Matt, Matt Cameron is an unbelievable drummer. I think he's the best drummer to come out of Seattle from that generation by a factor of a gazillion. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, no band, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> do whatever it takes to get as good a drummer as you can. Like, whatever it fucking takes, it makes all the goddamn difference. Be- I mean, if, if you're playing any kind of music with any kind of complexity and swing to it, just, I mean, like, they will add dimensions that you cannot think of, that you can't think of because they're a great drummer and you are not. <laughs> well put. Well, put, a lot of it is because bad drummers overplay and good drummers know when to pull back. Well, it's, it's that's, all, that's mean, one of the hardest things for drummers. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, it can go in a lot of directions. I mean, you know, Bonzo, uh, John Bonham was a pretty spare drummer. Joe Crover's an incredibly spare drummer, and he's like one of the great. He's one of the great mm-hmm. ones going. But it, it's also it just has to do with like groove. I mean, the mm-hmm. the, the kind of test that I had was, um, I felt that th- there's a couple drummers I've known where when they're playing by themselves in a room it kind of sounds like a complete song. Like there's like a, there's almost like a melody line and there's like harmony and like, like it just feels like a, a complete composition. It's right. not just a beat. 
you know, Orestes had that, you know, my friend Jerry Fuchs had that, um, you know, has an Orestes case. Uh, you know, to a certain degree, Kevin Shea, the really idiosyncratic jazz drummer that I played with in Coptic Light had that too, but that's really rare. And like that, that to me was a big tell, you know, it's like, you can just, you can just sort of feel it. And they just have it up. It seems like then when the band plays, it just sounds huge. Yeah. Even, exactly. even they, though the, the guitar tone alone might be shitty and the bass playing is nothing special, but there's just something about if you've got a great drummer that it just fills in all of that middle space and just makes everything sound huge. Yeah, exactly. Says the yep. drummer. Well, I play guitar in your band, but I just I, I thought that was a great. I, you got into it a little bit in the book, and I was reading into it, you know, my own mind as I saw that. So I just wanted to kind of dig a little deeper on that when I had the hey, chance. Sure. All about I, the drummer. All about the drummer. <laughs> I have a final question. So I don't know what in terms of sales of the book, but um, how does it feel to be? talking so much about the book in a sense the book may or may not overshadow the band uh whatever happens happens um i'm just i'm just i'm just so grateful that this got to happen i mean I'm, i still kind of can't believe that it did and i can't believe that people are interested in it i can't believe the press has been as good as it's been um i mean i'm going out on another book tour in a at the end of the month i'm going to be in cleveland that's as close as i'm getting to uh columbus i'm sorry guys I I mean, it's just been kind of a staggering, the whole thing's been a staggering experience. Yeah. I, I'm sorry, I know that's a really unsatisfying answer, but it's fucking true. No, no, no. Good answer. That's a good sp- Where else are you going to be heading on the book tour, so people know? Because this will be out before um, that, so. So, uh, Ann Arbor at Literati Bookstore on Sunday the 27th. Toronto at the Garrison, which is a rock club, on Monday, September 28th. I'm trying to remember. Minneapolis at Magers and Quinn, if I'm pronouncing that right, on Tuesday, the 29th. Uh, Cleveland on Wednesday, the 30th, um, at Happy Dog West. And uh, Flyleaf Books in Chapel Hill on Thursday, the 1st of October. Um, I'm forgetting the interesting part, which is who's appearing with me at these. In Chapel Hill on Thursday, October first, Laura Balance from Merge will be um, will be kind of having a conversation about the book. Wednesday, the thirtieth of September, in Cleveland, John Petkovic of Cobra Verde and I will be hanging out talking about the book, um, and he's amazing, so that's going to be great. Uh, Tuesday, the twenty eighth, in Minneapolis, the pundit for MSNBC and Daily Beast and elsewhere, Anna Marie Cox and I will be talking about the book at Magers and Quinn Bookstore. On the 27th in Toronto, Johnny Dovercourt, who does the Wavelength Music Series there, and I'll be talking about the book. And in Ann Arbor, on the 27th, Mike McGonigal, the music editor of Metro Times in Detroit, and I will be talking about the book. So um, I did that in a really fucked up way. Hopefully you can edit that in a successful <laughs> way. Very cool. I recognized almost all of those names. So. Right. Um, awesome. You guys should, uh, should come, to, uh, come to Cleveland. We'll get drunk. Oh, she got to drive back. You can't get drunk. I'll, I'll buy you a beer. And I don't know, <laughs> uh, is there a place where they can, where people can go to? Is there like a website that has a list of all those locations and dates? Um, if you, if you go to my author Facebook page, it is, uh, it is there. And I think it just might be, I think it just might be facebook.com backslash John Fine author. And John Fine is spelled J-O-N, there's no H, J-O-N-F like Frank, I, and like Nancy E. We'll link to it. Thank you. So that everybody can find it easily. John, thanks for 
coming on the show. This is a lot of fun. It was a blast. Thanks so much, guys. Really, thanks for thanks for your interest and thanks for caring about all this stuff. And everybody should go check out at your local bookstore, or I guess there's probably a, is there a digital version as well of your band sucks. Uh, there's a, you can buy it for Kindle. You can buy the audiobook, which I read myself. God help everybody. Um, every format, you know, amazon.com, powells.com, barnesandnoble.com, and your local bookstore, which you should support because look, bookstores are awesome. Awesome. And I just, you know, I, for the heck of it, I just Googled Inc. Magazine. Yeah. Um, they're still publishing real, real copies. It's not just like an, a web magazine. There's oh, actually, you know, you, no, we're, we're a real, yeah, we're a real thing. They're expensive. It's like fifty nine well, ninety for per episode per issue. That's no. how many pages? Wait, what? No, no, it, it might it might be five ninety nine. <laughs> is that or is that a yearly subscription for fifty nine ninety? It says the know. annual newsstand cover price is fifty nine ninety. Well, yeah, that's true. Yeah, if, if you buy all ten issues on the newsstand for five ninety nine a piece, it'll be fifty nine ninety. But I'm sure you can get a, okay. I'm sure you can get a subscription for twenty bucks. Okay, so it's so it's not fifty nine dollars per. Okay, that would have been that would have a really expensive uh, magazine. No, that yeah, that that's kind of a whole different business model. <laughs> <laughs> that's very exclusive. Indeed. Thanks a lot, guys. All right, thanks, John. All right. Have Bye-bye. a good evening. You good too. Thanks again. Bye bye. Special thanks to Chip Midnight for joining us for this episode. Check out kidsinterviewbands.com. And as always, if you like what you heard, please consider leaving us some positive feedback over at iTunes. And if you'd like to request a review, go to digmeoutpodcast.com for our request a review page. We'll be back next week with another episode. Dig me out. about this episode at digmeoutpodcast.com where you can find links to our Facebook page and Twitter feed as well as links to our request a review and merchandise page. Be magnet. <laughs> I'm gonna need um, overtime if you if you want me to say bitch on air. This week on Dig Me Out, Chip. <laughs>